as you're being seated, uh, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. It's so good to see you on this uh, last Sunday before Thanksgiving. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, in a moment we're going to read verses 1 through 28. My name is Colby, I'm one of the pastors uh, here. Uh, Thank you for those of you who are joining us on live stream as well. I'll give you a moment to get your Bibles open because we are going to read a lengthy passage. It's such a privilege to be able to read God's Word together uh, and then to study it. So let's follow along as we continue our series, Jesus is Better, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, says this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Verse 6, but this man who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests." This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Now he's speaking of Jesus, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by this one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray for your help as we pay diligent attention to these words. God, we're reminded that earlier, before bringing up this topic, the writer has already said that it's a difficult subject and that we're often dull in our hearing to lean into what you have for us. And so today, Lord, the best that we can during this time, Lord, we turn our attention to you. We give you our intellect as an act of worship. Lord, we open our hearts to you and ask that as we understand, you would also cause us to comprehend the beauty and goodness of what you show us through these words. And Lord, today, would you stir our hearts to worship and trust and faith in Jesus. Through him we pray. Amen. In Genesis 14, we get this interesting story. One of the most interesting accounts, I think, uh, in all of the Old Testament. Abraham, who is the one who had received the promise of redemption from, uh, from God, uh, in contrast to Genesis chapter 1 through 11, where sin has broken everything good that God has created, we get the contrast of God promising through Abraham to return his blessing to those who would be in right relationship with him. And he chooses Abraham, and Abraham is sent into this land that God has promised, and Abraham has a nephew, Lot. Maybe you've heard of Lot. Uh, he later comes up in the book of Genesis in the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But these events take place a good bit before that in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham's nephew Lot, who has decided to live in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, has gotten swept up in some unrest, we'll say, in the area. There's a feud between nine kings of city-states. So you had these city-states gathered on the plains, uh, and, and then the, they, they all had kings, and f- there was a four-on-five war, essentially. Four of them got together to go to war against the other five. And uh, the, the area of Sodom is conquered by the, the, the victors, and Lot finds himself a prisoner of war being carried off with the possessions of the people of Sodom. And uh, the result is Na- Abraham's nephew Lot is in danger and captured, and his household has been carried off. Abraham decides, well, I'm going to go after him. He's my family. And he gets together, and we get a sense of Abraham's significance, of his whole household. He gathers up a couple hundred men. So our idea of a household was not Abraham's idea of a household. This was the group of people who were gathered around uh, together uh, that were uh, upholding kind of a way of life together under Abraham's leadership. He gathers up a couple hundred men and he goes out and he conquers the captors. He overtakes Lot's captors. He successfully rescues Lot and deals a terrible defeat to those who had taken him. He leads all those who have been captured home and with the possessions and everything that has been looted, he returns all of these things 
And we see that after he's victorious, as he's returning to where he is settled, as he returns, Genesis records that he has a meeting with two people. Two people come out to meet him as he returns. One of them is the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom has come out to, uh, um, to and Abraham is going to return what's been stolen from him. And he's come out with Melchizedek, who Genesis calls a priest of the Most High God. Well, the king of Sodom is there because he wants to make an informal treaty with Abraham. He says, you know, you, you take some of this, these possessions, even though they were ours to begin with. And Abraham says, no, I, I'm not going to allow you to be able to say that you're the one who's made me rich or I owe you any of my protection. He says, take back what's yours. I'm not concerned about that. Abraham rejects the retreat, treaty, returns everything to him so that the king of Sodom cannot say he made Abraham rich when it was really God's blessing and this is the key it was God's blessing that had caused him to flourish now that is contrasted and really highlighted by the fact that Melchizedek is there as well Melchizedek is there for an entirely different purpose he is he comes out identified as the king of Salem a city that would later be called Jerusalem and he for, he's foreshadowed as the king of Jerusalem and he comes out and he's identified in chapter 14 of Genesis as a priest of the Most High God. And he's come out to preside as a priest over a moment of blessing and worship with Abraham as he is returned. He delivers to Abraham as he comes forward to him and his men the provision, it says, of bread and wine to refresh them. He's brought out bread and he's brought out wine and they're there to refresh them sort of in the wilderness as they return. But he's also come to pronounce the source of real victory on behalf of God. He's playing on the role of a priest who is representing God to Abraham to remember, to remind Abraham who really blessed him. And then he's playing the role of a priest to receive an offering of worship for God on Abraham's behalf. So like a priest representing God to Abraham, he reminds him where his blessing has come from. And he says, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed is God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. But we also see that he takes a tithe of everything and, gives, and, and Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek as an act of worship. That's going to be important later. And there are several things that are just left there for us. So all of these details are thrown together in a few verses there after this great event. And there are several things that are just kind of left out there for us. But here's what's notable. Here's what you should understand. He's the first priest mentioned in the Bible, Melchizedek is. Well before the later Mosaic law would establish the Levitical priesthood, we have this priesthood that is made up of Melchizedek. We're not told how he became a priest or how he came to be considered one. We're not given his lineage. Later, we would be told that the priests would be sons of Aaron after the lineage of Levi and that they, that was the only way they could rightfully have it. But this is a priesthood of a whole different level. We're not told about the end of his priestly work. So in a sense, the writer of Hebrews sees that as just he's, he's got this sort of ongoing priesthood that is yet to be completed. So we're not told about his end. He just shows up. There's this moment reminding Abraham 
where his blessing came from, and a moment of worship to God. And he presides over this connection with God that Abraham has here. And that's it. Melchizedek mysteriously is never spoken of again. And he's not mentioned again until Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, a thousand years later, David is looking at the priesthood around him and saying, I don't think this priesthood is ultimately what God is preparing to use to bring the sacrifice that would make his people right with him. And he looks forward to the coming Messiah in priestly terms in Psalm 110. A thousand years later, David sees this. He looks ahead to the Messiah, Christ, as a priest who he says would come in the manner promised and approved by God for a greater priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. He said, this one that is coming, when the Messiah comes, he'll be a priest like Melchizedek was, not a priest like the Levites were. This is the form. And he explains that, and this is what the writer of Hebrews is really focused on today. Now, here's the main idea. We're going to jump into some deep theological waters for a few moments, but I promise as we get to the back half of the sermon, it'll get increasingly practical, and there are even some embarrassing stories for me. So hang with me here as we think about this. But here's the main idea. We're going to see this. When we read Hebrews 7, here's what we see. Melchizedek foreshadows a greater priesthood in Jesus. The story of Melchizedek foreshadows a greater priesthood in Jesus through which we are saved completely. So Melchizedek foreshadows a greater priesthood in Jesus through which we are saved completely. Now to show you this, actually what happens is we've got this big argument that takes like 21 verses and we're just going to run through it quick and then we're going to sit with the writer in the meaning of it and think about what it means. So let, let me just walk you through how he shows us that Melchizedek foreshadows a greater priesthood that's fulfilled in Jesus through which we're saved completely. Well in verses 1 through 3, they, he shows us that Melchizedek foreshadowed a priesthood that is more permanent than the Levitical priesthood. That's what's happening here. Notice as he tells us about uh, the meaning of uh, Melchizedek's name and highlights what he did and who he was. And in verse 3, he ends, but he ends by saying that Melchizedek resembled the coming son of God in such that he continues as a priest forever. That his priesthood is not the type of priesthood that ends when he died, because we don't find out that he died. But but what he's really wanting to show us is this priesthood, he says, it was a foreshadowing, a symbolic way of pointing to the coming priest who would hold the priesthood permanently. It was a permanent priesthood. So so verses 1 through 3 foreshadow a priesthood that's more permanent than the Levitical priesthood. Now the reason this is important is because the people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to are a group of people who have come out of a Jewish background and have trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation, his shed blood on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. And they've been told that through faith they can be made right with God because of Jesus' sacrifice and not the ongoing sacrifices of religious ritual going on in the Jewish temple through the priests that were there. In fact, the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of that priesthood and now the old priesthood has been set aside. And they're being tempted to go back. They're being pressured by family to go back. And they're being told to hold fast to faith 
in Jesus Christ instead. So verses 1 through 3 show us a more, that there's a more permanent priesthood than the Levitical priesthood pictured by Melchizedek. Verses 4 through 10 show us that Melchizedek foreshadowed a priesthood more prominent than the Levitical priesthood. He makes this little argument in this section uh, about this more prominent priesthood by essentially saying in verse 4, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. He says in verse 4 through 10 two basic things. He says, when Abraham met Melchizedek, instead of Melchizedek sort of honoring Abraham, Melchizedek blessed him, and the one who is greater always blesses the one who is less. And he says, so Melchizedek is a priesthood of greater magnitude and importance than Abraham. And so then he also shows that Abraham paid tithes to him, and in Abraham, his kind of argument is genetically, the, the later priesthood of Levi is paying those tithes. So here's kind of the idea, the, the people of Israel revered the Levitical priesthood, and they brought a tenth of what they had to those Levitical priests uh, uh, throughout their lives and throughout the thing, so that they would be supplied for. And he says, you know, long before that ever happened, back here, Abraham, who eventually gives birth to the Levitical priesthood in his genetic line, they're in him making a tithe. Abraham's greater than the Levites, and Abraham is tithing to Melchizedek. And so he's showing that, uh, that through this, that the priesthood that Melchizedek foreshadows is a more prominent priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. Well, then verses 11 through 14, he, he continues to make his case. He shows us then that the words in Psalm 110 point to the need for a priest that could accomplish what the Levitical priests could only symbolize. Now, the words in Psalm 110 are actually quoted here in chapter 7. I'm going to show you where they're at. Uh, it's a section, you see it in verse 17, and you see it at the end of verse 21. Psalm 110, looks out, David looks out at the Messiah and says of him, he says, You, the coming Savior who Jesus fulfills, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Now, if you follow in verses 11 through 14, you'll see that he begins and says, now, if perfection had been attainable through what the Levitical priests were doing for the people, then David wouldn't have had to write in Psalm 110, we need this greater priest. We need this more permanent priest. There yet remains a ministry and work that will actually accomplish what these priests only symbolize. So those verses show us through Psalm 110 that there's this need for a priest that could accomplish what the Levitical priesthood only symbolized. And then in verses 15 through 19, they show us that Jesus assumed, Jesus is the one who took this priesthood up, this Melchizedek priesthood, through his cross and resurrection. And through that priesthood, he introduced a better hope through which we ourselves draw near to God. The role of the Levitical priests in the Old Testament was to provide confidence for the people to draw near to God, that they had understood what God required of them in paying for their sins with sacrifice, and they could, in fact, draw near to the Lord in confidence that they'd been forgiven. And the priests played the role of making these assurances and carrying out these offerings. And, and so what we see here is that, that the 
the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, this greater priesthood than Levi, was fulfilled through Jesus when he went to the cross and he rose from the dead and introduced a better hope. Look at verse 15. He says, The need for this priesthood becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Similar to the way Melchizedek came on the scene with Abraham, Jesus comes on, not from a Levitical lineage, but because he rose from the dead and was purposed by God to fulfill what Melchizedek was just a picture of. And the result is actually significant. The result, he says, has come about because this priest now is a priest forever because his life is indestructible through the resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 16. He's become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, he says. And so he's going to go on in verse 20 through 22. To show us that not only has Jesus assumed the priesthood through his cross and resurrection and introduced a better hope. But verses 20 through 22 show us that this priesthood came with an oath that sets aside the Mosaic covenant with its Levitical priesthood in favor of a new and better covenant given by Jesus through his blood. Now that's kind of surprising because that's the message that the people he was writing to needed to hear. Don't go back to this old covenant which was a symbol. Come to Jesus who is the priest who can bring the substance of God's blessing really to bear over your life. And entrust yourself to him because Jesus promised when he spoke to his disciples that through him he would make a new covenant in his blood by offering his life. And the resurrection from the dead means he holds it permanently, a priest forever. Now he makes one more argument about how much more important Jesus' priesthood is than the Levitical priesthood. He says there in Psalm 110, we see that not only does God appoint him that way, but he swears an oath. Oath swearing was in connection with the formation of a covenant. It's his way of saying, Psalm 110 looked out and said this priest would bring together a covenant before God that could do what the old covenant could only symbolize. You see, he says, we we draw near to God with a better hope because Jesus is the substance of God's promise. He brings us into relationship with God, the fullness of the Spirit's work, and it's a living covenant, a better covenant, he says, right here. He's going to unpack it in chapter 8, but he says... It was set aside, the Mosaic Covenant, by a better covenant, and Jesus' priesthood is the only one we need. That means Jesus provides in himself everything we need, not only for access to God, but confidence before God to know that we're in right relationship with him, and that really brings us to the main point of what the writer is saying. When we draw near to Jesus in genuine faith, we are connected to the God of blessing by a better priesthood. You and I, by drawing near to Jesus by faith, are connected to the God of blessing that blessed Abraham, pictured through Melchizedek. We're connected to the God of the ages, the living God who possesses heaven and earth through a better priesthood by faith in Jesus Christ. Now the words of verse 25 capture the point of all this for us. 
If you've been following along and just trying to keep up with that little run through those verses, here's what the writer of Hebrews says this means. The result of Jesus being the greater priesthood, the result is consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. The case the writer's making is for us to draw near and hold fast to Jesus in our lives, no matter what it costs or what we face, because Jesus alone is able to save us, he says, completely. Depending on what translation you have, you probably say, see it says, save to the uttermost. Feels kind of old-fashioned, but it really says something, doesn't it? Like just, Jesus is capable of utterly saving us. <laughs> Another way to put it, Jesus completely saves us past, present, and future. Another way of saying it is to directly translate what what the passage says is to say that Jesus' priesthood brings a salvation at all times for our life. Consequently, he is able to save at all times, every moment, Consequently, he's able to save at every moment those who draw near to God through him. That's what he means there by uttermost. Complete at all times, utterly. His priesthood accomplishes what the Mosaic Covenant could only point to. Now, there's three ways then. The rest of the verses, all he does is he practically shows us three ways we can rejoice that Jesus has fulfilled this better priesthood. He wants us to see that our salvation is at all times complete. At all times complete. And here's his reasons. First, he says, because the priesthood of Jesus is permanent. The priesthood of Jesus is permanent. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, as he's helping us get inside the meaning of this, he says, this, all that we talked about, this priesthood role, makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, a covenant is simply a relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by his word. And here he says that Jesus has brought us into a better relationship with God than the Mosaic covenant brought the people of God into. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that Jesus has done that by having, because the priesthood of Jesus is permanent. A friend of mine was telling me recently that he had received a notice about his young adult child's late car payment, which made me think twice about whether I will have any young adult children with late car payments. Now, the reason he received the notice, you may be wondering, why did he receive the notice? The notice was a reminder that he was a guarantor on the loan with the son. And his first time hearing about it was when he got the late notice that it hadn't been paid. And you know, when you're a guarantor on a loan, it comes with a real message. That debt that cannot be paid by the principal party belongs now to you. It's your debt. Now, this passage reminds us that Jesus has done more than covered a missed payment of our debt of sin. He says there in verse 22, Jesus has been made the guarantor 
of a better covenant. It reminds us that Jesus has done more than covered a missed payment of our debt of sin. He has paid for us, it says, once for all. You notice down there, uh, further on in the passage, that he offered himself up, verse 27, once for all. So when we say that the priesthood of Jesus is permanent, we can remember that one thing it means is that it's paid for. That it's already paid for. What a joy to know. Uh, what, What difference would it make in your life to know even now that today your sins are paid for? Permanently. That, that Jesus has made a once-for-all payment and has, is the guarantor on your relationship with God. That means that where you cannot pay the debt of your sin, that he has already paid for it. He doesn't show up reminding us that we missed a payment. He shows up and says, the payments are complete. It's paid off. Now think about that for a second. Before we just run past that, like... Good church people. Every sin, what would it do to your relationship with God today if you drew near to Jesus by faith and were reminded to the depths of who you are that your debt of sin is totally paid for? Totally. And before God, he doesn't look at you as owing anything. Wouldn't it be amazing to think about what a relationship with God means when we don't owe him anything? Where he's not waiting for us to catch up on payments? That you're totally secure? That he sought after you when you were taken captive and brought you freely back from your captivity? Not so you could pay him back, but because he couldn't stand the thought of you being away from him? and in danger, and wanted to bring you near, and for you to know that it wasn't going to cost you anything, he was willing to pay everything that it would take, so that you could be with him, and today, your debt's paid off. Man, what what sort of warm-hearted thanksgiving could we have before the Lord as people who, who owe no debt to God? No debt to God. Honestly, he's the only person we could really practically ever owe anything to. And yet he wants us to have a relationship where we're not constantly looking behind us, wondering if we've caught up enough, on enough payments for him to bless us again. But right now, he looks at you and says, Jesus has guaranteed the payments. It's done. And I am pouring out my blessing over your life now. And it's permanent. Paid, he guarantees it. It's paid for. It's not sitting in layaway. The blessing of God is not sitting in layaway waiting for you to catch up on payments. Jesus has paid your debt in full. And God's posture is turned toward you, inviting you to draw near to him. That's because the priesthood of Jesus before the throne of God has offered the payment and is permanent and ongoing. His life couldn't be destroyed and he's alive right now carrying out the blessed reminder in the sight of God of things being paid complete. Well, that's good news, but he tells us in verse 23 through 25, we have another reason to appreciate the priesthood of Jesus and that's that the priesthood of Jesus is perpetual. 
It's not just permanent, it's perpetual. In verse 23 through 25, we're reminded that we are saved completely because the priesthood of Jesus is perpetual. A few years ago, we were hanging out um, with Stu and Selena Fugler. Many of you guys know Stu and Selena. This was like six years ago, and I had one of my biggest ever parenting fails. Annie and Selena were taking the older kids uh, out for a walk, and Penelope, our youngest, who couldn't have been much more than two at the time, was going to stay at the house with me. And it was one of those really nice days. And, uh, you know, the kind where, like, the doors are just open and kids are running in and out of the house and, and everybody's having fun. And, and Annie said, okay, yeah, 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 you got Penelope, right? And, and, and I nodded and I remained engrossed in my conversation with Stu. And if you've ever talked with Stu, Stu gets right there with you. You know, like, it's, a, it's an intense, direct conversation. And, and we were just enjoying that and... Um, and the next thing I know, all I can remember is sometime later, Annie walking into the house and saying, where's Penelope? Well, Penelope had walked to the end of the block, out the door, and was standing in the street on Northgate in Montclair. Now, some of you know Northgate in Montclair, which is one of maybe the three busiest roads in Montclair. And she's walking out into the street where we found her while I had my focus on something else. Why does Jesus' perpetual priesthood matter? Jesus, on the other hand, as the eternal Son of God and your priest forever, is your watchful priest now. Right now, in this moment. In fact, what he says, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him always lives means that the purpose of every moment of Jesus' waking hours, which are eternal, is to have a watchful eye over this blessed salvation of God coming to fruit in our life. He's not looking somewhere else. This passage reminds us to draw near by faith, and we find that even in these precise moments, Jesus is presiding over us. He lives with an undivided purpose to make intercession for us, which means he makes sure that the attention of God is drawn to working out its saving purpose in your life and my life right now with full attention. What a joy to know that if you have drawn near by faith to Jesus, the things you are facing right now are not a result of God's inattention. I don't know what you have going on in your life, but it's really easy to get the sense that God is being inattentive with us. But the priesthood of Jesus reminds us that perpetually he lives to make intercession for us, drawing the attention of God's saving blessing to our life as our priest. The things you are facing right now are not a result of God's inattention, but being cared for by his purposeful intention. Even the difficult moments that you may be facing or the challenges that are arising in your life or the uncertainties are designed and purposeful by God to bring you into the fullness of his saving work in you. How would it change your present moment to draw near to Christ today and believe that your situation that you have is being cared for by his careful attention and to look and anticipate what purposefulness might be there? 
Have you ever stopped to wonder about the purposefulness of your trials? You know, it's, we were doing it on the way to worship this morning. We found out uh, last night that all of our family members are pretty much not coming for Thanksgiving, like many of you probably are experiencing. Uh, and understandably, they work in the medical profession and they live in Pennsylvania, so crossing state lines and all that kind of stuff. And, but you got to imagine for children with lots of cousins that were, ex- you know, being anticipated, it was a little bit disappointing. So we were driving to church and we were talking about it a little bit and we just found out late last night. And I said, you know, one of the things we have to do is realize that through this, God may very well be protecting Hard to tell from what, but you know, maybe it's from grandparents who it would be a danger for them to catch COVID. God goes before us, and in these moments, even in a small little disappointment like Thanksgiving plans, we have to stop and we have to begin to imagine what purposeful thing God might be doing. Because, because God, his imaginations for us are full of blessing. And that means when he denies a good thing, he has some other good purpose for it in our protection, our provision, our preparation. There's all sorts of reasons, and we have to teach our hearts, actually. We've got to train our hearts to look at the things that we experience as disappointments or difficulties or barricades and realize that God is not being inattentive. He is purposing something through them. We train our hearts to trust in that, to believe that, because The priesthood of Jesus is perpetually presiding over our lives. And those are two really good things he shows us about this priesthood. But he ends by saying this. Even better, the priesthood of Jesus is pure. Pure. Begins in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. The fitting here is is that... The greatness of our high priest fits perfectly for the real depth of our need. (laughs) It was fitting that people like us, who are often weak and distracted and unable to save themselves and unable to pay their debts and guarantee their future and rescue themselves from the things that have them captive, it was fitting that we would have a high priest like Jesus That we would have a high priest who is pure. He says, who is holy. And here we think about holiness often in purity of life. But it's also purity of devotion. Jesus is set aside to nothing else but this. That's what he's doing. He is is providing and bringing to pass his saving work in his people's lives. He's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. There is no point where Jesus will be disqualified by his sin and resulting death, the writer says. He stands above the priests of the past in Israel's history. Even the great ones like Samuel, verses 26 through 28, shows us that given our constant need, God has met it with a perfect provision in Jesus. And verse 27 specifically says of him, look what it says, He has no need. Why does he say that? He says it because like those high priests in the past to offer sacrifices daily first for their own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered himself. He has no need. 
You know, we all remember the safety videos on airplanes, right? Back when we used to fly. Safety videos on airplanes. If we lose cabin pressure and the masks come down, what do we do? We have need, right? We've got to take our attention and we've got to put it on addressing the need that we have. Address that first uh, those of, and then take care of those of our children or those who may need help. And we need to stop and put on our oxygen mask first. Well, it's such a powerful symbol that Annie and I have often talked as we serve our family or as we serve in other situations that we need to make sure to put on our oxygen mask so that we're capable of doing that. But here, the purity of Jesus' life, his status as the Son of God, who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and now exalted above the heavens through the resurrection of the dead, means he's a fitting high priest for us. He has no need because that fits really well for a people who cannot save themselves. A people who are unholy, guilty, not distinguishable at all from sinners and undeserving of the exaltation of heaven. There is not a moment in the future of our lives where Jesus will need a breath, where Jesus will need a break to take care of himself. He remains our priest, purely devoted. And that is his priesthood. Permanent, perpetual, pure. And through his cross and resurrection, he remains that for you today. Past sin, forgiven. Present problems attended to. Future needs provided for. As we draw near to his throne of grace and receive what is necessary for us. In our time of need, we find an attentive, devoted, permanent priest. Gives us confidence that we live under the blessing of God even as we wait by faith to experience its fullness. And today we can entrust ourselves in the midst of this world to a God who is promising and preparing us for the next. And so I want to invite you in whatever you've got going on in your life to draw near to God by faith today. Maybe today you realize that you've never, you've never had your sins forgiven. You're not confident that you're righteous before God, that God has this relationship of blessing to, toward you. And you've thought that you could work off your debt. And God is saying to you, it's been paid for by Jesus. Come trust him to bring you into the blessing of a relationship with me. Today you need to turn from your sin and entrust yourself by faith to Jesus to draw near. Maybe there's some of you in your present circumstances, you've got to consider what it looks like in this moment as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, to draw near to the Lord and entrust his purposeful intention and attention over your life. To think with him about what it is that he may be purposing through these moments in your life. And then to rest in the confidence of his pure devotion that brings us on to completion. Because he is the son who has been made perfect forever. And he's spending his time as our priest to bring us to God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us even now to draw near. That these words would stir up fresh faith in us. As we entrust ourselves to you. Lord, often 
our eyes see the challenges and the difficulties, but they aren't able to look up and see the provision that you have for us, the ways that you are saving us, rescuing us even now. Lord, would you give us a glimpse of the goodness of Jesus' work on our behalf so we might trust in you fully today. In Jesus' name, amen.